Once again, I invite you to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. We'll begin reading at the 32nd verse, Hebrews 11, 32, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Let us hear now the word of our God. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, please, by your Spirit, quicken us, enliven us, Help us hear. Help us understand. May we be transformed by this, your word. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not exactly sure how you study a text, especially one like this, without a certain sense of awe and wonder. Hear me now, dear Christian. We have in our time entered an era of what appears to be inevitable persecution. We live in a time when everything is tolerated except to be considered intolerant. And even the good and serviceable word intolerant has undergone such a change in meaning to serve the behemoth of social and moral change. Now, to simply disagree is to be intolerant and thus considered intolerable and worthy of, at the very least, cancellation, if not outright violence. The ethos of our age is one in which everything must be challenged and changed except for the challenge and the change. 
as we have witnessed the consequences of deconstruction as it's applied to literature, to history, to ethics, to morals. The problem with the beast of deconstruction is it's never satisfied. And once you turn the deconstruction on the deconstructed, I'm not sure what happens next. My hope is awakening, revival. You see, my friend, you need to do everything in your power, including apparently to, to our culture, the use of medical technology to change your actual biological reality, to conform to your emotionally preferred reality. And you must affirm such changes or you're a hater. You must have the freedom to fully unencumbered, be unencumbered by the responsibilities of sexual intimacy to such an extent that the death and destruction of another human being is of no consequence. In fact, it is an essential. How are we to live in such times? How are we to stand firm? Now, please hear me when I say this. Human beings are no worse here in the early part of the 21st century than they have ever been. We've always been bad. In fact, we're good at it. One of the things at which we truly excel seems to be wickedness. How to live, how to stand firm. I mean, my goodness. Has anyone ever had to live as a believer in such hostile times? So much to tell, so little time. How does the author begin? And what more shall I say for time would fail? The author of Hebrews has recognized he's got a lot more he'd like to say, but he's running out of time to say it. And so he enters into this flight of rhetorical flourish, if you will, to draw to a conclusion these declarations about prior faithfulness. And what more shall I say is the signal that the writer could keep going, but realizes he has to abbreviate what he would say. And in our own time, my friend, when I think about the church, when I consider the era in which we live, when I look at those around us, let, let me say that there's been such errors, I think, in terms of Christian faithfulness as the whole victorious Christian movement was a mess. And the only bigger mess is the whole word of faith movement. And they end up in absolute disaster. In fact, I don't know how you read Hebrews 11 and come to the conclusions of either of those streams. We never get over something in the dying words of Martin Luther, we are beggars, this is true. That's not, we'll talk about this later, Laura, that might be good for my grave marker. Not sure about a Baptist pastor quoting a Lutheran, though. 
We haven't time for that. Our difficulty, my friends, is we tend to think that others have had or are having now an easier time of living as Christians than we're having. We think there's this uniqueness about us, that either we're not as spiritual, we don't have what they have, we don't get what they get, and somehow others, especially those who've gone before us, had a much easier time. God was nicer to them, God was kinder to them, and we're kind of adrift here. But the reality, my friend, is the reality of the final verse. Since God had provided something better for us. Once again, you may not underline things in your Bible, but I'd say that's a good underline right there. God has provided something better for us. The greatest victory of faith is ours because of Christ. Now let's think about this for a moment. When we look at this text, let's consider this first. What we could call faith's visible victories. Faith's visible victories. Verses 32 through the first part of verse 35. We read there, as he says, time would fail us to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead back by resurrection. Stop. Faith's visible victories. Now, the order here is not chronological, nor as they appear in the text of Scripture, because Barak actually precedes Gideon, Jephthah precedes Samson, Samuel precedes David, but it appears he's citing the most visible leaders with the most visible victories first. And what he has here is a combination of what you could call both the well-known and the less-known. Barak and Jephthah are lesser known than the others cited. And what stands out among all of them is that every last one of them were extraordinarily, insufferably human. Every last one of them. But here's what really stands out. Tom Schreiner cites this. One of the striking features of the list is the weakness and sins of those who are identified as people of faith. But none of those things are mentioned. Brothers and sisters, is this not a fascinating thing? Now you and I read the text, and yeah, I know, well, you messed up. Yep, I know that. Know that one. Know that one. I'm wondering if we're getting the wrong lesson when that becomes the thing we know the best. Think of it this way. If you just go through the list. Gideon. Gideon, by nature, is a coward, my brothers and sisters. He's weak. He's feeble. And he puts the Lord to the test. And we all remember the whole thing about the fleece. And one time he puts out this uh, sheep's fleece and it's, Lord, let the ground be wet. 
and the fleece dry. Well, let's try that again. Let, let the fleece be wet and the ground dry. And then I've seen believers in the course of my life take this on as a model of how to talk to God and get direction. I'm going to put out a fleece. Yeah, that's a great idea. Run with that. My friends, Gideon should have simply heard God's word and obeyed God's word. Right? Please tell me this is not controversial. If God says do it, what should you do? Do it. If God says don't do it, then your response, don't do it. Won't put out a fleece. No. How about you just obey? How about you just hear what he says and go with it? Barak. <laughs> oh, Barak. Deborah is judging Israel. She goes to Barak and there's this opportunity for uh, deliverance and the Lord's going to do it. And Barak, being a manly sort of man, says, I'll go, but you've got to go with me. And he said, well, if I go with you, a woman's going to get credit. I don't care. I need you. Now, we can run with that all we want to, brothers and sisters, but here's the ultimate reality of all that. The Lord had a plan, and the plan included not only Deborah, but another unknown woman. We know as Jael. <laughs> I'll just warn you, if you ever stay at anybody's house where the wife's name is Jael, you might consider not spending the night. Sisera, leader of the Midianites, is running, trying to find a place to hide, and he comes to her tent, and she says, come on in, relax here, have a little goat's milk, cover up, take a nap. I'll watch. She did. She watched for him go to sleep, and then she took a tent peg and drove it through his temple all the way into the ground. Now, some of you say, well, that's a, little, that's a little iffy. Yeah, that was so iffy that the children of Israel composed a song about it. This was in the all-time greatest hymn hits during the era of the Judges. Samson, who liked the ladies, and I love this description from Kent Hughes, a great dunce whose moral brainwaves had gone flat. Jephthah, the illegitimate son of Gilead, hated by his legitimate brothers, a mighty warrior, is used by the Lord and in a moment makes a foolish vow that whatever first comes out of the door of his home is what he will dedicate as a sacrifice to the Lord. One wonders what in the world he was thinking. What comes out of, I don't know, did he just have regularly sheep, goats, chickens coming out of the front door? I don't know, maybe he had a cousin that lived there he didn't like very much. But it's his own daughter that comes out. David his failure with Bathsheba, both in terms of immorality and then murder. Samuel, who loses two sons. The prophets. And I quote this again. It is not the sins and faults of these men that are remembered. He doesn't mention the faults of any of them. But their faith and trust in God, showing that perseverance in faith for the author is not the same thing as perfection. 
Brothers and sisters, you ought to make note of that. Perseverance in the faith is not the same thing as perfection. Indeed, one sin may dramatically, one may sin dramatically and still persevere in the faith. Now, the Lord brings them quite obvious victories. Conquering kingdoms, David, administering justice, Solomon, obtaining promises, all the judges, shutting the mouths of lions, Daniel, escaping from the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, escaped the sword, the spies in Jericho, weakness turned to strength, Samson, even after his failures, his hair began to grow back, and he laments and mourns what he has done. He prays for God to strengthen him one last time. Mighty in war, armies to flight. Israel had seen this their entire history. There were times they never should have won, and they did. Women received their dead back to life, whether the widow of Zarephath, Elijah, or the Shunammite, Elisha. Now, why do I harp on this? Because, folks, these visible victories are brought by people who had visible problems. And I want you to hear what Calvin says about this. In every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. You know, I have never seen that as a counted cross-stitch on anybody's wall. This doesn't show up on a poster anywhere. Listen to the rest of it. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There's no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Christian, some of you let your failure define the entirety of your life. And I'm here to say on the authority of Scripture, stop it. I'm not saying to the, this to you in some pumped-up sort of way, trying to motivate you. I'm saying to you, what the text tells us is not that it ever hides the failures, but what God beholds and what God uses is your faith in Him. Why can we not rejoice in that? And why can we not make the allowance that sometimes Christians mess up? I'm going to tell you, my brothers and sisters, you're looking at one gentleman and a brother in Christ who is weary of the inherent thoughts of perfectionism that seems so prevalent and rife in evangelical culture in the United States of America. Now, I might as well say this. I know some of you are wondering it. A rather well-known evangelical pastor said in a sermon, he gave some advice to a grandmother regarding her grandson and whether to attend a same-sex so-called wedding. And the advice our brother gave I would say, from my part, I don't think that's the advice I would have given. But my brothers and sisters, I am not nearly as disturbed by the advice that pastor gave as I am absolutely mortified by the evangelical cancellation I see taking place now. A man who's faithful 
to the gospel, to the word of God, to the church, has done nothing but demonstrate a life of absolute faithfulness, gives a little different advice than others might want to give, and probably that I myself would have given, is suddenly worthy of being canceled? God have mercy on us all. Now, it's okay if you even disagree with me about that. We're not going to have a falling out. I've often said, I can live with you being wrong. <laughs> Faith's visible victories, and maybe should have said with that, visible victories even in light of failure. And please, Christian, do not for a moment take me saying that you have an excuse to sin. You have none. Right? You have been freed from sin. Don't do it. Well, I can't help it. Yes, you can. Well, you said God's gracious. Oh, my friend. <laughs> Don't you dare turn the grace of God into a license for evil. I heard a no. Amen. Out of the mouths of babes. Faith's invisible victories. Now this starts at the beginning of, in the middle, excuse me, verse 35, goes to verse 38. Come with me for just a moment. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. No names are given here. These verses, by the way, have no place in the entire Word of Faith movement. These are unknown. They were quite human as well. But God makes them victorious. How? Though tortured, the word there, tympanum, is actually used of stretching. So it's the imagery of the rack being stretched to death till bones and joints separate and hemorrhaging takes place. Mocking Flogging, don't ever forget, Jeremiah was beaten. Chains and imprisonment, Jeremiah once again. Stoned, there's a tradition that Jeremiah was literally stoned to death in Egypt and Zechariah, another prophet, stoned to death, Second Chronicles 24. Sawn in two, this is the tradition that Isaiah the prophet was stuck inside a hollow log and then they sawed him in two inside the log as King Manasseh, the wicked king, looked on in delight. Died by the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering in deserts and dens and caves, of whom the world was not worthy. Matthew Henry, the world did not deserve such blessings. They did not know how to value them nor how to use them. My brothers and sisters, hear this. Your triumph may not be an outwardly visible victory. Am I actually saying? Yes, I'm saying this. You may well 
die for your faith. Have you laid hold of this, Christian? You may seal your testimony with your blood. Is that failure? I can foresee a day that if things don't shift in the culture, where ministers who actually preach the word of God may find themselves fined and imprisoned. And churches who would employ such may find the same things. Is that failure? Is that loss? I didn't ask if it was painful. Of course it is. Is it a horrid prospect? Certainly. But my friends, if we are not delivered, remember the words of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember what they said? Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol, O king. That, my friend, is faithless. Faith has invisible victories. Okay. So there's both visible and invisible victories, but finally, Christian, consider this. And this is what I think may be the most encouraging to you today. Not only does faith have in, uh, visible and invisible a little play on words. Faith's indivisible victory. Now what do I mean by an indivisible victory? Verse 39, And all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Hmm. It sounds a little bit like 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These believers had great faith with very small revelation. Right? Abraham didn't have a Bible. David didn't exactly have a Bible. There was the book of the law. But a lot of these had nothing to speak of. And yet, with little revelation, they had great faith. They had not received the final promise of the Messiah. God planned for us. What did he plan? What does he say? Something better and something that without which they would not be complete. We are placed in the company of these great ones. Do you, do you get this, folks? Now, please, I'm not advocating this, okay? This is the Word of God. It's complete. Don't need to add anything. But in a very real sense, the spirit of is this. Your name, Christian, belongs in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. But I'm nobody. Some of them were such nobodies, they didn't even get named. And guess what? You fit. So do I. Not known, and yet we are connected. Here, Christian, is where I fear many of you fail to understand that you are essential to the kingdom's work, and because of the new covenant, have a greater privilege and blessing than even these Old Testament heroes. 
you have and have seen and can embrace something these never got to see except in hope and anticipation. You say, well, I've never seen Jesus, whom having not seen, you love and rejoice with a joy unspeakable and filled with glory. You see him, but you see him through the scriptures. This is why our confession includes this. We believe the new covenant has been established through the redemptive work of Christ. The blessings of which are only received by grace through faith. And that Christ has fulfilled the old covenant thereby making it obsolete. God's final words of revelation given through Christ and his New Testament apostles and prophets are the interpretive lens through which the Old Testament must be understood and, and applied. What are we saying? My friends, the new covenant grants us something they didn't have. What they only anticipated, you and I look back and see and know has happened. They hope for Christ. We know Christ has come. They had a sacrificial system. We know the final sacrifice has died. They had a hope in a resurrection we know we'll be raised because we're in Christ. He has come. And the blessed joy of the new covenant is that even now, to quote Charles Wesley's hymn, even now by faith we join our hands with those that went before and greet the blood-besprinkled bands on the eternal shore. I came across this hymn and I'm sure Nathan knows this because he knows all the hymns, apparently. At least, I've never caught him on when he didn't. Um, Christopher Wordsworth, Hark, the Sound of Holy Voices. Now, he's not making a move, so maybe I caught him. He's one maybe he doesn't know. Listen to these words. And thought, my friends, as we get ready for the Lord's table, hear these words and what they should say to us in light of this. We see faith's visible victories. We even see invisible victories. But what we see with great joy is it's indivisible. They're not complete without us. And we don't have the faith we have without them. We need them. They needed us. Hark the sound of holy voices chanting at the crystal sea. Hallelujah, 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 Lord, to thee. Multitude which none can number, like the stars in glory stands, clothed in white apparel, holding palms of victory in their hands. Patriarch and holy prophet who prepared the way of Christ, king, apostle, saint, confessor, martyr, and evangelist, saintly maiden, godly matron, widows who have watched to prayer, joined in holy concert, singing to the Lord of all, are there. They have come from tribulation and have washed their robes in blood, washed them in the blood of Jesus, tried they were and firm they stood, mocked, imprisoned, stoned, tormented, sawn asunder, slain with sword. They have conquered death and Satan by the might of Christ the Lord. Now they reign in heavenly glory. Now they walk in golden light. Now they drink as from a river holy bliss, yea, infinite. Love and peace they taste forever and all truth and knowledge see in the beatific vision of the blessed Trinity. 
God of God, the one begotten light of light, Emmanuel, in whose body joined together all the saints forever dwell. Pour upon us of thy fullness that we may forevermore God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost adore. My friend, what a call to worship. I'm going to ask my brothers, deacons who are helping with the Lord's table, if you'd come forward now while I say a bit more. Friends, when we read this text, 